Okay, please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. This is going to be our New Testament reading. read verses 28 to 30. And before we read, let's pray once again and ask for God's blessing. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please open our eyes now so we can behold the wonderful things that are in your word. Please teach us through your Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts, shine your light on the pages of scripture so we can see clearly what you have to teach us tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 19, starting at verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Amen. Turn now to Judges 15. Judges 15. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, 
We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand, and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, People who are not very good at chess, um, like me, I like chess, but I'm not very good at it, Uh, we have a tendency to play uh, what what more experienced players like to call hope chess. Uh, And it's where you you make a bad move because you can't think of a better one, and then you hope that your opponent doesn't see the problem with it, that you hope that your opponent will make the worst possible move in response. Oh! If he goes there, then I could totally go there. And of course, um, the problem is the other player is actually trying to make good moves, so it usually doesn't work out. Even the famous uh, chess champion Bobby Fischer once said, uh, my opponents make good moves too. Sometimes I don't take these things into consideration. Um, I often feel like chess would be so much easier if I got to make all the moves. Um, well, you might think of Judges 14 and 15 as a kind of chess match of sorts where Samson and the Philistines are going back and forth, making moves, each one thinking, this move is going to be the deciding blow. Now, now uh, we've got them, now we've got them, now, now we've had, now I've had the last word in this back and forth conflict. But in a sense, really, the Philistines and Samson are both playing hope chess. They're not anticipating the counterattack that spoils their little schemes and forces them to realize that, oh, yeah, that's right, the other player also gets to move. Um, That, of course, is if you look at these two chapters from a merely human point of view, though. Of course, as we've said time after time, whenever we're dealing with Bible history, we always have to ask first and foremost, what is the Lord doing here? I've told you that once, I've told you a hundred times. 
And in these chapters, what we want to zoom out and see is that the Lord is the real uh, grand master here, you could say. He's the one who's orchestrating these events to carry out his plan, um, even though the quote-unquote savior that he has to work with is um, a pretty terrible savior when it comes down to it. It's one of these situations where you say, well, with friends like these, with judges like these, does Israel even need enemies? And yet, in the Lord's hands, as the Lord oversees this chain of events, what happens is Samson becomes a powerful agent of both judgment and salvation. Uh, Judgment on the Philistines, salvation for Israel, in spite of himself. In spite of himself, because it is the Lord who ultimately is in charge of this chain of events. Uh, So let me give you a few headings to organize things tonight, and then we'll begin. First is going to be the Savior's Revenge, verses 1 through 8. Second is the Savior's Betrayal, verses 9 to 17. And then finally, the Savior's Thirst verses 18 to 20. So the Savior's revenge, the Savior's betrayal, and the Savior's thirst. All right, so the the most important thing to notice in the first section, Savior's revenge, is um, what drives Samson's fight against the Philistines? What is motivating him? And as a point of comparison, uh, let's take Gideon. So Gideon's mission Um, Gideon's mission starts with an individual act of courage. Remember when he uh, destroys the altar of Baal in his hometown? But it doesn't stop there, of course, because at the Lord's direction, Gideon becomes a leader of other Israelites, right? He he, um, mobilizes the people to go to war with him against Midian. And so for Gideon, it's not a, a private battle. It's not a private vendetta he's carrying out against the Midianites. He is truly carrying out the public office of a judge. He is leading Israel in a cause much bigger than Gideon. Things are very different with Samson. Very different. Uh, This is something Daniel Block especially notes. Um, In fact, he says this. I'll quote him. All of his achievements are personal blocks. As Samson, he says... Is a man with a higher calling than any other deliverer in the book, but he spends his whole life doing his own thing. Unquote. That's how Block puts it. Um, there's more than one writer who notes the, the sort of, again, chain of action and reaction, um, stretching really unbroken all the way through chapters 14 and 15 uh, from the... Um, Encounter with the lion, well, and even before that, just uh, the uh, stated intention to marry a Philistine wife. From that moment all the way down to this final conflict with the jawbone of the donkey and the uh, water um, coming out of the ground at Leahy, it's one unbroken chain of action and reaction, back and forth, back and forth, as one incident causes the next uh, as the different characters react to one another's aggressions. Um, And it's this escalating cycle of 
retaliation, basically, on both sides, Samson and the Philistines, um, without really any kind of bigger overarching intent to accomplish anything that has to do with Israel as a whole or anything to do with the covenant. Um, it's just back and forth, back and forth. And, and nowhere in that series of events do you see Samson leading God's armies into battle, standing at the head of a group of Israelites, mobilizing them together to make holy war against the enemy. Every step along the way, Samson is concerned about Samson. And that is it. He is avenging his personal insults and injuries. He's getting even, or tempting to anyway. Um, I think there's a, a little bit of a uh, just kind of basic wisdom takeaway for us here. Um, and this is just to see in, in black and white laid out for us here how conflict works. This is one of the things that Bible history does. We can, we can trace the big redemptive historical story We can also sometimes see just some basic insights into human character, human relationships, human conflict. And that's one of the things I want to bring out here. This is just how conflict works. We're seeing here how retaliation does not ever actually settle things in a conflict. Retaliation just escalates the conflict and provokes further retaliation, right? Um, So let's think about this in maybe our lives, our families, when we get angry Uh, It can be very tempting to think, well, if I can just fire off this one last kind of zinger and then just like drop the mic and walk away, then I win, right? That will be the perfect fairy tale ending to this argument Um, because this person was unfair to me. And so now I have the right to respond. It's my move. So I'm going to come back at them. Uh, Maybe um, if you're a little less aggressive of a person, maybe it's give them the silent treatment, which is just as aggressive as uh, many other kinds of. Um, conflict responses, something to make sure that I get the last move and end up in control of this conflict. Think of what Samson says, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will be quiet, or I will quit. Uh, After that I will quit. Um, And, of course, um, that's not the way conflict actually works, right? That's a self-deception when we start to think that way because... Um, that's thinking as though we get to make all the moves. It's playing hope chess, right? The other person then gets to move, and so the conflict keeps escalating. This is why Ephesians 4 urges us instead to bear with one another in love, with all humility and gentleness, right? It's why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. It's why Romans says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we've got to resist by the power of the Holy Spirit, that urge to have the last word, that urge to get in that final zinger, to make that last move of retaliation, because it's not the last. It's just the next. It's just the next step in a conflict that will eventually destroy both sides. That's the way conflict works. We can see it kind of just dramatized here in the history of Samson and the Philistines. Now, again, I want to reemphasize, though, having said that, that this is, again, just a wisdom observation. Um, And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, well, look, what Samson really should have done is he should have tried to be a peacemaker with the Philistines. No, that was not Samson's calling. Oh, Samson should have been bearing with the Philistines in love, with humility and gentleness. No, that's not what I'm saying. The fact is Samson was supposed to have conflict with the Philistines. Um, Samson had a divine calling to instigate conflict with the Philistines. He should have been starting a war against the Philistines, mobilizing his fellow Israelites. 
to fight against them together. But instead, the, the problem in Samson's life here is he is completely wrapped up in this personal feud, this vendetta against the Philistines for his personal offenses, instead of thinking with that broader perspective of the covenant of the people of God, of their oppression under the Philistine enemies. It's the wrong conflict that he's gotten himself preoccupied with, and it's distracting him from the real fight that he's supposed to be picking with these oppressors of the covenant people of God. So that's the problem on the human level, but... So saying earlier, remember, we have to think, but what is the Lord doing? What is the Lord doing? And when we ask that question, we should remember back to chapter 14, verse 4. In chapter 14, verse 4, the historian told us that the Lord, through Samson's desire to marry the Philistine woman, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, We've seen the problem with Samson's behavior. He's not behaving in a godly way according to his holy calling. However, let's also look at the outcomes. What is the outcome of this series of events? Through this chain reaction, through this escalating cycle of retaliation, the Lord is successfully accomplishing his purpose. He is successfully picking the fight that he wants with the Philistines in spite of Samson's just complete derailment uh, from the life mission that he was supposed to be living for. This is something Ralph Davis emphasizes. Uh, you know, Samson, we think of as a great hero. Um, Samson, in this chapter, is not really acting heroically. He's just not. But the Lord is. The Lord is. The Philistines, after all, really are getting thrashed by the Lord through Samson, his instrument, through Samson, warts and all. The Lord is beating up on those Philistine enemies on behalf of his people. And so from an Israelite's point of view, reading this history, you can think about how an Israelite would be able to raise a cheer as the Philistines do suffer defeat after humiliating defeat at Samson's hands. But it's not really Samson we're cheering for. We're cheering for the Lord. Samson is a lousy savior for Israel. He's only after his own revenge. But through Samson's quest for personal revenge, the Lord, who is Israel's true savior, with a capital S, is indeed beginning to save Israel from the Philistines, just like he said he was going to do before Samson was born. He's doing that. What makes this even more remarkable is that the Lord is doing that for Israel in this chapter, even though his people, even though the Israelites are actually fighting on the wrong side in that conflict. They are fighting on the side of the Philistines in this chapter. Can you believe that? Look at verses 9 to 17. What is wrong with this picture? See, just like the Philistines blackmailed Samson's wife into wheedling out of him the answer to his riddle, now the Philistines blackmail the tribe of Judah. They come against them with an army, basically implying, hand over Samson or else. 
And so you notice the Israelites' attitude towards Samson in verse 11. They don't see Samson as a savior. They see him as the problem. Um, It reminds me a lot of Exodus chapter 5. You remember the very first time that Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. What's the first thing Pharaoh does? He says, you're distracting the people from the work. Now they have to make bricks without straw. I'm going to make the slaves work even harder. And so the Israelite foremen get these new instructions from Pharaoh about the bricks without straw. And they go to Moses and Aaron. They say, now look what you've done. You've made things worse for us, not better. And that's about how the men of Judah feel here about Samson. They see Samson as a maverick. He's a loose cannon. And he's only making the Philistine oppression worse for them. It's as though they're saying, can't you just let us enjoy our oppression in peace? Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? They don't want to be saved. They just want to be left alone. If you think about it, isn't that the attitude of so many people even today, so many of our friends, neighbors, family members, they, they so desperately need the salvation of Jesus. They so desperately need the gospel, but so many people really don't want to be saved as much as they just want to be left alone. And after all, I guess, they have a point in that they're, they're not wrong that the salvation of Jesus... Uh, would indeed disrupt their lives. It might be quite inconvenient for them, even costly for them, um, to repent and believe in the short run and in this life. But you can see here in the people of Judah the problem of that spiritual blindness where they can't see the opportunity the Lord's providing for them here to experience so much better than the status quo that they're trying to just hold on to. And, of course, that's largely Samson's own fault. Um, We've got to ask here, why at this point does Samson not stand up and, you know, the the soundtrack swells and he makes this stirring speech inspiring this group of men of Judah to go and rally and fight against their Philistine oppressors and trust in the Lord and, you know, throw off the yoke of of the Philistine oppression and, and win this great victory. Wouldn't that have been a great outcome to this confrontation between Samson and the people of Judah? He's got this whole army right here, ready to go, 3,000 men. If Gideon's 300 could put to flight an uncountable number of Midianites, what do you think these 3,000 men of Judah could have done to fight against the Philistines? But it's a missed opportunity, of course, instead The picture we get is of God's people arresting and binding the Savior that the Lord has provided for them and handing him over, betraying him into the hands of their Gentile enemies because they are so desperate just to keep things the way they are. And I hope that sounds familiar to you because that is what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane 
as well. When Judas came and betrayed Jesus with a kiss, and where the Israelite temple authorities came with torches and weapons and bound him and handed him over to the Gentile Romans. I love that moment in John 18, I know many of you too, where Jesus asks, whom do you seek? And when the apostles come out to arrest him, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he, with such power and authority in his voice that the men arresting him, they draw back and they fall to the ground. And yet, in that moment, mighty Jesus, so much mightier and better than mighty Samson. Like Samson, Jesus submits to being bound because he knows that it is through his arrest through his captivity, that he's going to be brought face-to-face with his enemies and be given the opportunity to strike against them a mighty blow, to win a decisive victory on on behalf of his people, um, even though it was just his very own people who had betrayed and bound him. I find very convicting the hymn that says, O break... O break, hard heart of mine, thy weak self-love and guilty pride, his Pilate and his Judas were. Jesus our Lord is crucified. To me, one of the most striking points in the whole Samson history is what happens in Verse 18, after Samson has indeed been brought face to face with his enemies, he has indeed been empowered by the Holy Spirit to rushes upon him to win this uh, greatest victory so far, striking a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. But then in verse 18, all of a sudden... um, you find that Samson very thirsty. Uh, it's interesting how, as he experiences that moment of intense thirst, it seems like Samson, who again, remember, has just had the Spirit of the Lord rush upon him back in uh, verse 14. Samson seems at this moment to have kind of a, a flash of spiritual insight. After all the blundering about for a chapter and a half, Uh, driven almost entirely by selfish motives. Now all of a sudden, Samson, for once in his life, he turns to the Lord. He cries out to him. And he was very thirsty, it says, and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. See, it's it's like Samson is suddenly seeing clearly that mist uh, 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 has, has cleared away from his soul. And all of a sudden, he's interpreting his life in terms of the mission foretold for him before his birth. He's describing himself here as the Lord's instrument of salvation. What's also striking about this moment is that in this high point of victory, where he's just struck down those thousand men with the jawbone of the donkey, this 
prodigious display of strength, the greatest so far in his life. Right back to back with that, Samson has now been brought to this moment of completely helpless weakness. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So last time, you remember in chapter 14, how we talked about how the historian holds up for us side by side Samson's tremendous strength and his tremendous weakness. And he's confronting us with both back to back. In chapter 14, the weakness was his weakness for Philistine women, which we're going to see again, of course, in chapter 16 with Delilah. But here it's different. Here it's his thirst. His thirst. This is mighty Samson, right? Kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, Samson. And yet mighty Samson is, after all, quite limited and vulnerable. He's shown here to be utterly dependent, to have no strength of his own. He's only able to survive here by the grace and power of God. As Ralph Davis, Davis puts it, we see that um, the Savior needs saved. He's a Savior of a sort with a little less. But here, Samson himself is showing his utter dependence on Israel's Savior with a capital S, who now breaks in to save the Savior. Samson himself needs to be saved. It kind of reminds me of Elijah. Uh, Remember when Elijah wins that great confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, that high point of his prophetic ministry, and then immediately what happens next? He has to flee into the wilderness, running away from Jezebel to this moment of deep uh, despair in his life. And there in the wilderness, what does the Lord do? On his way to Mount Horeb, the Lord provides for him supernaturally food and water for his journey when he's in that last extremity of exhaustion and discouragement. Now, as we see the water come out of the ground, as the Lord splits open this hollow place, uh, we would be right to think that sounds familiar, because this is not the first time the Lord has provided water for his people in dry places. And it's not an accident here. Um, In fact, Daniel Block has a whole section Uh, where he traces a whole series of parallels between Samson as an individual in his life story and the national history of Israel as the covenant people. Um, This starts with their origin, the supernatural birth of Samson, miraculous birth, and and the supernatural uh, existence of Israel through a supernatural creative act of God in the Exodus. Um, Think about or even tracing back further to the birth of Isaac and the whole life of Abraham. Um, Think about their callings. Israel, as a nation, has a holy calling to be set apart to God. That's reflected in Samson's status as a Nazarite, set apart holy to the Lord in a special way. You think about their characteristic sins, how Israel is constantly being drawn after foreign gods, and Samson is constantly being drawn after foreign women. Both of them continue to be rescued and preserved by God in his grace in spite of their many and uh, dramatic failures. And here, in this scene, we see this particularly poignant way that Samson's life 
relives the life of Israel as the Lord provides for him, as it were, water from the rock. Not because he deserves it, not as a reward for anything that he has done, but solely by his grace. Think about Israel in the wilderness. It was the same way. When, the, when God brought the water from the rock for Israel in the wilderness, it was not a reward for Israel. It was not a response to their faithfulness. It was a response, in fact, to their grumbling, to their complaining, to their constant faithless disobedience. And yet God, in his grace, continued to provide for them water from the rock. He continued... The Lord continued to take it upon himself throughout that whole wilderness journey to see that Israel was brought safely through to the end of the journey that he had planned for them precisely because the Lord knew that left to themselves, they would never make it there because of their weakness and because of their sin. Well, there's one more place to look before we close as we think about this matter of Samson's thirst, this moment of utter weakness and dependence that comes right on the heels of his great victory. And that is the passage we read earlier from John, where Jesus is on the cross and he's laboring under the wrath of God. He's waging that final conflict with sin and death and Satan And you remember the Lord Jesus saying as he hung there, I thirst. Jesus thirsting on the cross. Consider that for a minute. Jesus, who is so unlike Samson in so many ways, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his faithfulness to his mission, unlike Samson. Nonetheless, the Lord Jesus brought himself that low that moment of agony on the cross. He brought himself, came down to be made like Samson, not in Samson's great strength, but in Samson's great weakness, thirsting, parched, as he was dying under the weight of the condemnation of our sins. See, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that just as the Lord heard Samson here at Lehi, he also heard those cries of Jesus on Golgotha. And Jesus, that um, much, much infinitely better Savior than Samson, the Savior with a capital S now come in the flesh, God the Father rescued him from death, too. But in Jesus' case, God didn't just split open the ground to bring the water out of it. Jesus, In Jesus' case, God the Father split open the grave. He split open death itself. See, the, the risen Savior, Jesus, is unlike Samson in this as well. That Samson, after his great victory couldn't even get for himself the water that he needed to survive. Samson could not provide water for himself, much less for anyone else. But Jesus, the greater Savior, 
says this. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John goes on. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. And it is the same spirit of God who rushed upon Samson and rested on him to empower him for this great act of deliverance against the Philistines. That same spirit has now become for the people of Christ a fountain of living water welling up within us because we belong to him. There's the spirit of the risen Christ, Christ who did not merely have the spirit rest upon him, although he did that in his anointing as the Messiah, but now is able to do what Samson could not, which is to give the power, that power of the Holy Spirit to all of his people. And it is in his strength then, in the strength of that spirit of the risen Christ, that the Lord calls us then to carry out our mission, not for our own selfish purposes like Samson did, for so much of his life, not seeking personal retaliation, not defending our own honor, pursuing our own agenda, but following the path of the cross, laying down our lives for one another for the sake of God's kingdom purposes, trusting him to provide us with the strength and the provision that we need to serve him. And that is the difference between playing hope chess just making the same crummy, selfish moves over and over because we can't see past our own little short-sighted game plan for our lives and then just thinking, well, maybe this time that kind of choice will have a good outcome, even though it never has. But instead, we find our place. We find our place in faith and obedience in the victory of the Grandmaster of all things. Devil has not resigned the game yet, but checkmate is inevitable. Love it. That's good news because our Savior with the capital S is so much better than him and so much better than us at this game. So much better than Samson. So let's stop playing hope chess with our own losing strategy and instead find our place by faith in his victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who thirsted on the cross so that he might become the Savior who gives without measure abundance of the Holy Spirit like fountain of living water welling up within our hearts. Send that Spirit, we pray, to empower us for the work, for the mission that you have given us to do and help us to do that, living by faith, walking by faith, not pursuing our own agenda, our own honor, our own uh, desire for personal gratification, but living for you, for your kingdom, for your righteousness, and rejoicing as we join in the victory that Christ has won and is winning through us as his people. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.